The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith. Certified Financial Planner and CEO of Seattle-based Wealth Management Company, Empirical Wealth Management. Today, my co-host, Ethan Broga, is out on a uh, luxurious vacation. I've got Sean Zubair, one of our financial advisors, sitting in today. Good afternoon, Sean. Good afternoon, Ken. Thanks. Good to hear from you. Simon, I can't uh, hear anything in my headphones, so... Oh, that's much better. Thank you. Uh, This show is being uh, produced live out of Seattle, the uh, Seattle Tower, the Empirical Tower, downtown Seattle. If you would like to call in during the show, if you have any questions, thoughts, or feedback, we'd love to hear it. And our number is one 472 That's 866-472-5790. Give us the buzz. Give us a ringy-ding. Uh, if you want to shoot us an email throughout the, during the show or in between, you can do that at contact, the word contact, at empiradio.com, contact at empiradio.com. This show is designed to share with you prudent investment financial planning concepts to help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. There is certainly no shortage of financial information out there in the media, and uh, our job here is to try to decipher and separate what is noise and what is useful, implementable knowledge. And we do that based on um, our namesake, Empirical, an evidence-based approach to uh, addressing financial-related issues and a large part of our discussion, as you know, Sean, on the show is investment theory. Sure. That's one of my roles is in the firm as the director of our investment research department. And uh, I spend a lot of time thinking and considering how um, investors can make better investment decisions, how they can increase their odds of being successful at achieving their financial objectives through their investment strategies and the strategies that we run for our our clients. If you are interested in learning about Empirical as an individual investor and you would be interested in talking or having us take a look at what you're currently doing and giving you feedback on how we may or may not do it differently, Um, maybe throughout the show today, Sean, we'll talk a little bit about what we do as advisors and how we how we uh, believe we can add significant value to an individual's financial life. If you do want to do that, you can reach us 
throughout the week at the firm here, and it's 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or you can shoot me an email directly at ksmith at empiricalfs.com. I'm usually the one doing these to uh, Ethan, so it's kind of nice work, Simon. That's ksmith at empiricalfs.com if you want to shoot me an email throughout the week. All right, Sean. Uh, I had a lot of things I printed today that we could talk about okay. um, and uh, throughout the show. And I thought last week at the end of the show, though, I want to pick up on something we were talking a little bit about investor psychology and, and some of the, the mistakes that we have a tendency to make. And uh, one of those was I had mentioned that we won't have a tendency to want to track or put our money in the investments that have done well recently or other common indicator is uh, Morningstar ratings. So we see a lot of individuals have been have been trained to look to Morningstar ratings. So I had mentioned last week, uh, Sean, when Ethan and I were talking about this at the very end, we ran out of time. That studies show that that's probably not the best idea. And I just I I, I, I like to get information um, in a variety of places, but I, I found uh, you know I log into the Wall Street Journal and I've got some articles that will, I usually read through them and then critique them and filter them through our empirical lens, as it were. Um, but this one was uh, actually in 2010 and one of their, uh, Sam Mamudu, Mamudi, uh, wrote the article, it said, five-star mutual funds don't live up to their past. I thought I'd read through it real quick. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, as a continuation of our discussion, top-rated portfolios perform poorly, but still attract new money. And, I, and this goes with a theme that we've been talking about actually for the last few weeks about some of these articles out there. Tim Courtney decided. So the story goes on with Tim Courtney decided to had he had had enough in a meeting after meeting this year. He and his colleagues at Burns Advisory Group had recommended mutual funds to prospective clients only to be hit with the same response every time. Why are you telling me to invest in a three-star rated fund? So very frequently, Sean, we've experienced that. I'm sure you have. Yeah, that comes up frequently. Why is this particular fund three-star? I found another fund in this category that's a five-star. Why don't we use that? Um, Those kinds of scenarios are very common. That sums up the way many investors allocate money to funds. Look at products that have four or five-star ratings from Investment Researcher Morningstar, Inc. Take that as an imprimatur of quality and hope for the best. Such decisions are perhaps even more common in volatile markets when anxious investors view top-ranked funds as somehow better equipped to handle adversity. Five-star funds in particular seem to have their own allure. Even in 2008's brutal market, when the other star-rated funds saw net outflows ranging from $100 billion for three-star funds and $14 billion for four-star funds. So basically, Sean, what was going on there in 2008 is $111 billion came out of funds that were rated three stars, where coincidentally, only $14 billion came out of funds that were rated four stars. And five-star funds enjoyed a $67.5 billion inflow. Interesting. So there was a net outflow if you totaled all those up, right? But but sure. of the, the three categories that they're talking about, the trouble is investors seem to forget that star ratings look backward based on a fund's past performance. 
And studies have shown the ratings have no predictive value. That's a pretty powerful statement. I like to stop throughout the article, Sean, here. Mm -hmm. But that's a pretty powerful statement to say they have no predictive value. And if that were the case, then what is the function of rating them? And why is it, Sean, that when you see, I see commercials, I'm flipping through CNBC, you see a lot of mutual fund commercials, or if you flip through any of the trade magazines that we get or we look at, um, and you see mutual fund companies advertising, when I go to investment conferences um, and there's booths, one of the things they emphasize is this particular fund of ours or group of funds have a five-star Morningstar rating. Mm -hmm. So basically, there's no predictive value in that. Why the accolade or why all the attention about the five-star? That's a good question. They did a, a good job, apparently, in the past, but will that past performance bear out over in the future? Well, having to get over that hurdle... Um, Explaining how star ratings shouldn't influence choices. Every time we recommend a fund that wasn't five stars, something we've had to do time and time again, said Courtney, Chief Investment Officer Burns Advisory. So Courtney and his colleagues went back to December 31st of 1999 and studied the subsequent 10-year performance of five-star funds. What he found might convince us investors to kick their star rating habit. Of the 248 stock funds with five-star ratings at the start of the period, just Four still kept that rank after 10 years. So 248 at the end of a 10-year period, only four of them that were previously five-star rated continued to be a five-star rated fund. The 218 domestic stock funds with the rating typically lagged their category averages over the period, not just the benchmarks, but other mutual funds. The exceptions were 30 foreign large-cap funds, which had a 10-year annualized return of 1.44 compared to their category average, of 1.32. In other words, it's just, it's not just that five star funds don't on average continue to lead their peers, but they actually do worse in subsequent years. Mm. The worst performers were small cap growth funds. The category's 29 five star funds in 1999 lost an average of 3.6% annualized over the next decade. The category overall was up six tenths of a percent in the period. So for a 10 year period, Sean's putting his hard-earned empirical paycheck into his five-star rated funds, and what he received was a whopping, uh, particularly he chose the worst performing long-term category, which is small-cap growth, but he entrusted his his uh, five-star rated fund mutual fund managers to handle his money diligently and prudently and utilize all of the valuable resources they have at their disposal to outperform the market, and Sean got a six-tenths of one percent return. And the entire, uh, I'm sorry, not, the average did six-tenths of, of 1%. Sean lost 3.6% wow. per year annualized over the next decade. So for a 10-year period of time, you lost 3.6% a year. All your hard-earned uh, down payment for your home, Sean, is now evaporated. Yeah, I'm not too happy about that. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Sean. Would never buy a five-star rated fund that was actively managed. Of course not. Um, that's, that's why we don't do this. That's why we're not involved in this game. Don Phillips, the managing director at Morningstar, took exception to Courtney's findings. He said that Morningstar changed its star rating methodology in 2002. 
In response to problems that became apparent as the tech bubble burst, the biggest change was using 48 categories rather than four to compare funds to their uh, to those similar strategies. So there was a link in this article, and I could have pulled up a whole bunch of other studies, but I just was following this here briefly before the show, Sean. Sure. And uh, the uh, there's there's another one I wanted to, to pull up here, uh, titled the Don't Judge a Mutual Fund by Its Past, Why Track Record Shouldn't Guide Your Investment Choices. So this was 2010. Um, it's, it's perhaps the most quoted financial services mantra, past performance is no indication of future results. Unfortunately, human nature usually leads us to think the exact opposite. Most investors uh, look at a fund manager's return before deciding to invest. The question is just how much can we judge? So I think we only have a minute here, Sean, or a very short period of time. But um, when we come back from a break, we'll talk a little bit more about this and why um, why are five-star funds more likely to underperform their peers going forward when they've done a phenomenal job of being at the top in the past um, than funds who have lower warning star rankings. We'll talk about that when we get back. Great. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. Just like to remind all of our listeners out there that this is a live show and we'd be happy to read an email from you at contact at empiradio.com. You can also give us a call at 1-866-472-5790. And if you'd like to give us a call any other time, you can reach us at 1-800-923-4307. So before the break, you were talking about uh, mutual fund ratings, Ken, or Morningstar ratings, rather? That's right. I just read one article because uh, last week we were talking about behavioral finance and uh, how we, as individual investors, have a tendency to want to chase what's doing well recently or what has done well in the past. And um, I was linking to just another article that was in the in the Market Watch, uh, the Wall Street Journal, that from 2010, Sean, that had some additional... Um, studies that they reference on this. And so top dogs fall down. Uh, Advisor Perspectives, which is an e-newsletter for financial advisor, in December published a study which suggests that Morningstar Inc. star ratings, which are based on past returns, don't provide much predictive value. It also found that many five-star funds were likely to underperform their peers. Hmm. Robert Hoopshire, chief executive advisor of Perspectives, randomly selected a fund with a particular rating, and then looked at how the fund performed against randomly selected funds with lower star ratings. From the third quarter of 2006 through the third quarter of 2009, he found many cases where the lower-rated funds were more likely to outperform those with higher ratings. Yet despite those findings, the public, quotation here, the public pour money into the funds that get higher ratings. Part of the problem is how fund companies sell themselves. He said the most concrete thing a fund can do, can sell is its historical performance. So they say, well, we did well in the past and you should think that we'll do well in the future. Matthew Moray, professor of finance at Pace University's Lubin School of Business, conducted several studies on the predictive value of Morningstar ratings. He took issue with some of, of uh, Hoopshire's methodology, particularly the way it lumps all mutual funds into five broad categories, which were U.S. stock, international stock, taxable bond, balanced, and municipal bond, and compares funds within these broad categories. That doesn't account for the variety of approaches that funds take, he said. A better method, Maurice said, would be to look at the fund's relative performance within each of the Morningstar's 48 categories. And he said uh, this The advisor perspective study acknowledges that it doesn't include funds that were liquidated or merged away during the period, a fact that likely boosts the performance of the worst funds, since it's rare for four or five uh, star funds to close. Um, Morningstar's Reckenthaler questioned the time frame the study used, but while he disagreed with some of the details, he said he, he didn't have issue with the notion that it's hard to use past performance to predict future results. Um, Moray said there is a case to be made that top managers can repeat their performance. I do think good managers who've been at a fund a long time produced consistently good performance 
and charge relatively low fees are a good way to go, he said. Murray added that about 10 years ago, he was a firm believer in index funds, but has recently come around to the idea that there are some good managers out there. The only problem I have with those statements is he doesn't provide any empirical evidence that that is the case. Um, And while we've covered this over the years of talking about investing, Sean, but it's not enough that some good managers exist and have done well. Right. In the first study, I think it was four of the funds out of the 250 almost that maintained a five-star rating 10 years after the initial look period of 1999. So 2009. The, the issue is that when you're picking out of 248 five-star funds, mm-hmm. are those great odds when only four of them wind up being five-star at the end of this cycle? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think those are great odds, Ken. No, you're going against some pretty... Now, but if if I was evaluating that time period, what he's the what Moray here is saying is, well, there are some good managers out there, um, particularly if they charge low fees, which studies have shown that's a better indicator of which actively managed funds over longer periods will will rise to the top. All other things being equal, that there's reasonable management in place. That the the cost of the fund has a has a direct correlation to the long-term performance ranking that they'll wind up having, at least better so than picking funds uh, based on recent past performance. And right. so the likelihood, I, I get, I, I'm saying, is, yeah, they're out there, but the problem is that we don't know that they're not there by chance, by luck, um, and in order to try to gain access, whether it is chance, luck, or skill, um, you're looking at four out of 250, basically. Those are not odds that are great when you're planning out your retirement. Right. And in this case, when we were talking about that small cap growth category and the difference being six-tenths of a percent positive for the category and losing something to the effect of 3% a year for 10 years, that's an enormous compounding difference in wealth, terminal wealth. Yeah, absolutely. Compounded for that period of time. Do you want to take that chance? Uh, Because while there is rewarded risk that we talk about on this program, those are risks that if we take them and we have our our time horizon correctly aligned with the investments that we're choosing, we 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 have at least a reasonable amount of confidence that we'll be rewarded for the for those risks that we take. The unrewarded being that there's really no there should be no expectation when you're talking about odds of four against 250 as an example. That's not a rewarded risk. Um, that would be a, a, an unrewarded risk that you shouldn't expect to be compensated for taking that active management risk in that case. And that's why we don't recommend basing. If you had a financial goal that was critical and a 2% compound return difference could make an enormous amount of difference in your ability to meet that goal, particularly over a very long period of time. So it's not a game that, that we... I don't know why the, this data gets released and these articles are out there. Um, and there are many other more academic studies. These are kind of off the, off the academic uh, journal kind of studies we're looking at, just people from different newsletters and, and uh, investment firms that went ahead and dug into the Morningstar beta- database. Mm-hmm. But there's a paper called Luck versus Skill um, that's out there and uh, several other papers that, 
that address this issue. And uh, the conclusion is the same, that picking funds based on past superior past performance or a, a, whether it's a Morningstar ranking or some other ranking system that is basing its system on past performance has not, has not been a great way of handling it. And so um, now if we take that concept and we say, well, that's why I don't buy mutual funds. This is where I think a lot of people make a bigger, even bigger mistake. So the big mistake is would be to buy five-star funds simply because they're five-star mm-hmm. or chase a category of an investment that is doing well. Um, any type of performance chasing strategies is, in my view, not a great way to invest um, and has been shown to reduce returns. But where people can take a, a particular fact and then apply it to put themselves into a, a worse situation sometimes we see is when they say, yeah, that's why I don't buy in, I don't buy diversified mutual funds. Instead, I hire a guy like Ken Fisher who picks my stocks for me, thinking that that's a different strategy or that somehow he belongs in a different category of evaluation. Or they say, you know what, I'm not going to even have him do it. I'll do it. Uh, as if it was the structure of the mutual fund that was the flaw right. in the process, right? And that, that to me, creates a greater risk than just buying a basket of these diversified, actively managed mutual funds would. Why do you think that? Well, because most individuals don't put in steps to diversify uh, that even active funds will, will be most of the if it's a gr- large cap growth fund, for example, and they're trying to beat the large cap growth index, they typically will have some restraint in terms of not putting too much of the assets in one particular s- stock and one particular sector. Most of them are smart enough to say, hey, we don't want that kind of risk because if we have a significant underperformance in a year, we're going to have to do what they normally do, and that's close the fund <laughs> or merge it into some other fund and bury the performance and start over again. But ultimately what these companies want to do is they want to get, particularly if they have a five-star rating, they want to use it to their advantage to get in as much assets as they can. And I don't think they're ignorant to the statistics. I don't think that they're ignorant to the game. Um, I think they they know that they are, when they get a fund that's done, well, market being that it's not going to persist. I believe that the mutual, most of the actively managed funds understand that concept, and they advertise the heck out of it to get as much assets in it as they can while they can, even though they know the, the larger they become, the harder it will be for the fund structurally to outperform, to repeat the performance it had when it had less assets. But if you run the numbers at the management fees on a lot of these mutual funds, and to me, Sean, the, the management fee charged by a mutual fund that pools your money with everybody else's should be significantly less than the fee you pay to an advisor who works directly with you to develop an investment plan and a financial plan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're getting a lot better service for that dollar. Yeah, you're getting a, an enormous amount of individualized service. And the advice that takes place in that advisor relationship world uh, is significantly 
more impactful in terms of the differences in returns you'll and experience you'll have. And I give you a couple examples. A lot of times when we meet with investors, they're not properly diversified at all. So the fact that they have one five-star manager versus another, that's the least of their 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 return issues or risk issues. So would you pay the difference between a one and a half percent no load active manager, large cap manager, small cap manager to another? The difference between them, if they're both five star rated, is 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 not going to be as, as big of a deal as the fact that they don't own any small or Ethan and I were talking that international real estate was up twenty percent year to day. Some of these asset classes, small value, um, real estate, commodities, things that go into a portfolio, value companies, how much is in value versus growth, um, large, small, emerging markets, developed international markets. Those are bigger picture uh, issues that if we look back over the last 40 years, those decisions would have had a greater influence on your ultimate return and risk characteristics of the portfolio than which five-star manager I picked. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll pick up on these uh, investing insights when we get back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment, and that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. Just like to remind all of our listeners out there that this is a live show and you can send us an email at contact at empiradio.com. You can also give us a call at 866-472-5790. And if you'd like to give us a call anytime when we're not on there, you can reach us at 1-800-923-4307. Put your cell away, Sean. Put your cell away. <laughs> we'll do. We're trying to do a show here. Well, Sean, going into the break, we were wrapping up our discussion about why uh, focusing on Morningstar ratings or past performance or hot dots is not a great strategy. Um, And I was sharing that a lot of times as investors, it's easy for us to get distracted on issues that really have little value. And sometimes we're we're willing to pay um, large amounts for that. And it's just the psychology that we have. And so we're, we're... We'll pay when expenses, for example, are buried inside of mutual funds or in wrap programs or brokerage or bank programs, uh, advice programs where we think we're getting free trades or whatever, but we really don't understand or want to look too deep into As long as we don't see what's going on in these costs, I'll share some good examples, uh, just recent media. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, then, but, but then they're very reluctant to... Uh, some of us are to, to pay a fee to get direct advice. Um, and I was saying, wow, you know, my whole career, I early in my career, I connected to this concept of um, I was building my belief system of what do I believe in here? What, how do I believe people should be investing and approaching their financial planning decisions? And I was a great book early, early in my career that we talk about was, I think it was Nick Murray's, um, yeah, the excellent investment excellent advisor. Excellent investment advisor, because this show we want to we wanted advisors to listen to this. And so, if you're young in the advisory world, um, that was a great book. And one of the things he said was, you really need to have something you believe in. You shouldn't be selling anything you don't believe in, um, or or giving advice to people uh, on, on investments or ideas that you really don't have a belief system around. And uh, that was something that made a pretty strong impression on me very early in my career, at the very beginning of it. So I started looking at, at what I was doing at the job that I was in and saying, hey, is this the best possible thing? And it came to the conclusion, people are paying fees, whether it's trading costs because they're trading their own account or they're paying the cost in terms of lack of diversification. That's a cost or lack of implementation of the best science that's out there on how to invest, that's a cost whether you are willing or, or have been realizing it or, or embracing that or not. Lack of, lack of action or lack of, of, a, of taking the right course is a cost. Um, risk that you take, whether you're fully aware of it or not, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That's a cost. Opportunity cost. Um, all of these things... But they pay inside of these programs or these mutual funds, these fees, and, and get no advice that, in my view, is is meaningful or significant. And so you have a situation where the average mutual fund 
in the realm of Morningstar's database is maybe one and a half percent. I haven't looked at it recently, but I think that's I'm, I'm probably not too far off if no, you took all of them, so. small, large, somewhere in that in that range. Um, but people balk at paying an advisor a lot of times one uh, percent to work with them individually to design and manage their their portfolio, and I, I find that very fascinating. I've always found that fascinating because I thought, wow, you know, the the clients that I'm sending to advisors. That time I was in a role where I was referring clients out to other advisors that were in the capacity we are now, they are getting significantly greater value for every dime of, of, of uh, money that they're investing into their financial advice than those that are out there doing it themselves or just buying into these expensive products through brokerages or banks or investment companies, insurance companies, whatever, and they don't even realize it. Um, and all I was saying is the impact, Sean, between one manager who doesn't know you and another manager who doesn't know you, but they all pull your money in together, um, that they're making on your life is the difference between those are very insignificant. And in, in reality, when we look at the studies that we talk about on the show over and over again, most of them, the, the vast majority of them, are not only not adding value, they're deducting value. So that example of the small cap growth would be one. Right. They charged higher fees mm-hmm. and delivered under performance um, for in return for that. And this is a, a concept I would like to see in the active management world. And I'm diverting here from my plan, Sean, a little bit. But I was sharing with our research analysts that it frustrates me that in, when you divert from a uh, index funds aren't perfect by any means. And I think there are some improvements that can be made to standard indexes. But yet they beat 90% of the the, the stock pickers out there. That doesn't mean you don't mean you don't need an advisor. That's not at all. If you take taking that out of what I'm saying, you're you're misinterpreting me, because I think you need an advisor for a variety of other reasons. But it's not to pick stocks. That's what I'm saying. Um, the last thing you should be paying for is for an advisor to pick a small number of individual stocks for you, or any number of individual stocks. But you take that index fund return, say it's the S&P 500 index, and I'll say I'm an active manager, someone who's trying to deliver a return in excess of that index. Well, when we look at our large company um, fund that we might use in that category, large U.S. stocks, passively managed fund for the most part, it's charging somewhere between 8 and 11 basis points. So 1% being 100 basis points, eight-tenths of one percent, or eight-hundredths of a percent then. Very small amount. Very small amount, right? If I'm an active manager and I'm saying, Sean, what the value I'm, the only value I'm going to deliver you, because what else is there inside of an investment strategy that doesn't coordinate your investments, right? Not building an investment strategy for you like we do, um, where we're adding all kinds of things based on your specific goals and, and risk tolerance and all that. But they're just managing... In a vacuum, and I'm just here to pick large stocks um, and beat the S&P 500 index. That's my job. I think their baseline expense ratio then should be that comparable to an index fund. So maybe it's 8 to 11 basis points. Then if they want to be paid for adding value because their whole proposition with these five-star funds, for example, the entire proposition is that we're, gonna, we're supposed to beat the market. 
If it was just to capture the market, why would I pay one and a half percent for that? Good question. When I, when I can buy the index for eight basis points. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not getting any other advice for you, and I'm not getting any tax management, I'm not getting any other consultation, I'm paying for one thing, and that's for performance. Not past performance. I should be paying for future outperformance of that particular benchmark. So what I would like to see is that they take a baseline expense and say, hey, this is what it costs an index to run, right? Now, we have to earn the fee that we feel we deserve above that. Why should you get paid to try to beat the market? Uh, I'm taking all the risk. You're using my money. You're charging me for it. But you don't guarantee anything, right? That's completely different than guaranteeing that markets will always go up or down. It's I'm charging you a fee for one reason. And it's to beat the, beat the particular market benchmark in that case. Then what I think they should do is a performance-based fee. There are a few funds. I'll have to look them up, I think, out there that do it. But then I think you say, hey, in excess of the benchmark return, so let's say the S&P 500, fasten your seatbelt here, Sean. Let's say the S&P 500 does 10%. Okay. I could have bought the index. I would have got my 10% minus my, say, it was 10 basis points. So my net return to me would have been 9.9% for the year, right? right. Now, I'm the, I am the uh, active manager trying to beat that S&P 500 index. My benchmark is that 10% gross of my, my fee, right? Right. I get my 10 basis points because that's what the index charged. Okay. So now I got 99 if I did 12%, I can say, hey, I'll, I want to, I want a piece of that. I want a performance incentive. I want to get a piece of that action because I did my job. But if you take all of it, you didn't add any value to the client, right? right so yeah. there needs to be some split. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's, hey, we'll take 10%, 20%, 30%, maybe even up to 50%, up to some threshold of the profit we make in excess of the benchmark. And I think there needs to be some, there would need to be some assumptions there, which is we're not taking significantly greater amounts of risk to do that. Right. Yeah, that would be. So possible. if you all of a sudden they levered up, right, just borrowed money on margin, and the market happened to go up one year, the market went up ten, and they went up eighteen. They actually underperformed if they were two hundred percent leverage, right? Right. It's got to be on a risk-adjusted basis. Right. But don't worry, I think I can make it work out. Why Why are those funds not out there, particularly these five-star funds? If they're so confident that they can outperform, and really that's the only value or reason for their existence, by the way. That's the sole purpose of their existence is to outperform. Why won't they put their money where their mouth is? That's a really great question. And this came up because we were talking about hedge funds. We were looking into hedge funds and meeting with a manager, and they... You've got this um, idea where you have these really bright people out there that are running hedge funds. Now, I'm not saying they're bright, but I'm assuming they are. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that these are really smart people. Um, at least on paper, they've got all the credentials. They've got the best degrees from the best universities. Um, and they're going to say, they're saying, hey, I'm going to go out and make money for clients no matter how, how it is. I'm not just going to buy stock and bonds. Oh boy, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, Sean, I want to pick up on this concept and then uh, 
we'll move forward. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on voiceamerica.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Sean Zubair here with host Ken Smith. And Ken, before the break, you were talking a little bit about compensation structures. And uh... yeah, Sean, I was just saying that in in a recent uh, meeting with a mutual with a hedge fund company, um, I I was saying one of the reasons in the past I haven't recommended hedge funds and it focus on the word one of the reasons. <laughs> um, it was because of their their cost. Um, it, they they want two and twenty is a common term in the industry, and uh, and I was just applying this same logic to just regular open ended mutual funds, not hedge funds. That's what we were just talking about going into the break. I think they should if if they're purporting to be um, top performing funds that you're investing in them so you can beat the market, then they should put their money where their mouth is, charge a reasonable management fee that is comparable to an index fund and only take a I, I, it's called an incentive based or performance based uh, incentive system only take a portion of the profit that beats the particular index so in my example index does 10% for the they get their index management fee 10 basis points in US large for example and it, and if the fund does 5% 
Um, it outperformed the index, and it has to be on, a, in my view, on a risk-adjusted basis, and I would have a way of quantifying that. Um, can't be because they're going out and leveraging at a time when the market happened to go up. Right. But on a risk-adjusted basis, if they actually added alpha, right, that mm-hmm. this is what we're all, the, all these guys are looking for is alpha, um, through great management and smart stock-picking skills, then they could... They can share a percent of the profit in excess of the index. My frustration or complaint with the hedge fund industry historically on this has been, A, they want 2% for doing nothing, right, just for for being invested in their fund, whether they add any value or lose you money or whatever, right? right? That's a pretty high fee in itself. It's very high fee, And then the 2 and 20, they want 20% of profits. But that profit is from dollar zero. And then they, the, the one thing they add in there to try to make you feel a little bit better is, well, it'll be a high water mark. So we, if, if the fund has, um, say you put a thousand dollars in the fund, mm-hmm. they're going to get their 2% right off the bat, right? right. So they're going to, they're going to take that out. But then if the fund, uh, goes up to $1,500 by the end of the year, um, there's been $500 of, of, of net performance that's so gone on. Well, they're going to take out of the five hundred dollars. They're going to take twenty percent of that. Right. Um, now, when the fund goes up to, well, let's stop there. But let's just say if you put it in a comparable benchmark or some other conservative bond investment, say that say you were going to benchmark it against a treasury, <clears throat> and it happened to be a time when treasuries were paying something, because now that'd be pretty easy to beat, right? right yeah. Depending on what they're doing, but. I would say, well, why are you charging me above? There needs to be some benchmark return because I can buy CDs and get something. Mm-hmm. So why are you getting 20% of any profit? It should be above a particular benchmark. Then you get the profit. You get to split the profit. Right. I don't understand this idea of any profit. Oh, yeah, yeah. You put it in any profit we earn, I get 20% of on top of the 2%. Well, then what happens is most people and most advisors in companies like ours don't have the capacity or the time or the energy or even the knowledge to how do you evaluate these hedge fund managers so they tend to not to mention the risk of any one of them because you don't know exactly what they're doing it's very difficult to figure out because their concept is if they're an unregistered hedge fund or limited partnership kind of a deal their concept is hey I'd I, I can't reveal my secrets because then others will exploit these and I won't have any opportunities anymore. That's their concept, right? Yeah. But the idea, though, being that you don't know what's going on. So at any one time, you're not really sure how much risk or where you're taking it. Um, if they do what they say they're going to do, then the risk should stay managed. But things go wrong. Like long-term, uh, there was a uh, that, the company with the Nobel Prize winner guys that was on it, um, long-term capital management several years back. My problem is then you, to diversify, typically they hire a, a fund of funds structure. So you have someone else in between who pools a bunch of these managers together. They charge a fee, which typically is around 1%. Then they want a profit, a percentage of the profits. So imagine you've got a bunch of managers that are each charging a 2% ongoing management fee for guaranteeing you nothing, by the way. Right. Then if there isn't, if there does happen to be some profits, they're going to take 20% of profits from dollar one. Right. Then you've got a guy who's managing the, the pool of these guys who says, I want 1% a year on top of it. So now you're at 3% a year, <clears throat> just a guaranteed management fee they're going to take out. 
Um, then if there is any profit, they want to take somewhere between 0 and 20% of the profit. Then you have a, an advisor like, uh, like us, for example. Well, if we're managing a pool of buckets, now we typically would charge a fee, right? Whatever that advisor, whatever advisor or broker you're dealing with, wherever you're buying it, whoever's putting you into it is likely being compensated somehow. So theoretically here, you've got three layers of expenses that even if the the guys at the very end of the chain here who are picking the investments are very bright, in a lot of cases, if, if they achieved their target, maybe it was between an 8 and 10% return, you're paying somewhere between 6 to 10% a year in fees. Wow. So it's a huge hurdle. Study after study after study shows in these publicly traded arena anyway on the mutual funds, that hurdle could never be overcome. Um, the way they get around it, in my view, is they don't really allow themselves to be benchmarked to anything other than the group that I see when I'm being presented on these hedge funds, Sean, is the hedge uh, fund of funds index. So it's an index of reporting hedge funds. Um, so it's kind of like saying, hey, there are no index, there are no market, if we went to the publicly traded stock market here now, and we say, hey, there are no, there is no stock market in second like S&P 500 that we can benchmark against that has low cost. Right. We're going to take 100 managers, and all the managers in the pool charge 6% a year, but that's our benchmark is the average of them all. Hmm. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. No. So you it, it would give you the ability to look better because someone's going to outperform out of the bucket, but there's no neutral benchmark to go, oh, wait a minute, who agreed that a uh, 100 managers that charge 6% is the end, is the benchmark? Right. <laughs> That wouldn't happen in this world, right? People would say, well, no, really, it's reasonable to take the S&P 500 index, back out 10 basis points. At least that's the current cost, right, on, that you can get it down to. Um, what's the return of that? And now it doesn't matter how, that every other manager out there is charging 10% or whatever they're charging because they can't benchmark themselves against themselves. They have to look at some other neutral benchmark, right? Right. Anyway, Sean, I kind of went around there, but I, I think some of this stuff gets lost for a lot of people. And uh, we didn't get through. I've got a number of other articles I wanted to talk about. But uh, don't worry. We'll be here tomorrow, next week, not tomorrow, uh, same time, same channel. And uh, because one of the things I wanted to talk about, Sean, was what some meetings I've had recently and some of the mistakes I see or things that people focus on, it's all kind of a continuation of this behavioral finance stuff and the Morningstar ratings where they're asking questions or they're making decisions about their finances on, on the questions they're asking have the least importance and the, and the least relevance to how they should be making the decision. Yeah, they're kind of losing um, the forest for the trees. Exactly. So while we have time, I'll keep talking here. But um, an example would be something like, well, if – you're talking about how do you, you know, in this case, I'm laying out an income strategy. How do you retire um, given the low interest rates we have and, and if we use very low forward stock market returns? How can you build something that you can retire on? Um, and they want to get caught up on questions like, well, are you going to use an ETF? Or are you going to use a mutual fund? <laughs> Which is the least 
important thing to be right. focusing on. It has nothing to do with who you should be hiring, by the way. But we'll talk about more that next week, if that's okay. We'll, we'll start off with a little bit of this. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining Sean and helping out. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We'll see you next week on Empirical Investing Radio. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 